Today we're continuing our sermon series through the letter of Philippians. We've come to a very important passage in Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. Now pastors and scholars believe that these verses represent possibly an early creed or confession about the nature of Christ. This is called the great Christ hymn of Philippians. This possibly helped Christians, early Christians, memorize um, something about the nature of Christ and be able to teach his nature to other people. It comes across as very poetic, very elegant. Now, all of that is, could very well be the case, and we're going to spend a lot of time looking at these two things, how Christ can be fully God and fully man, right? That's at the heart of what Paul is saying. Both of these points are found in our text. Christ is fully God and fully man, but neither of those points are actually the point of this text. So we need to first put our passage in context, To get to the context of this passage, we need to go back to chapter 1, verse 27. Look with me in chapter 1, verse 27. We're going to try to set the stage, set the context for what we're looking at today. It says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Look in chapter 2, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by how? Being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And here it is again. Have this mind among yourselves. What is Paul's point? Is it, could it be any clearer, right? What the context is that Paul wants us to understand. He wants the church at Philippi to be unified through humility. He's encouraging the Philippians to maintain the unity they have by living out true humility with one another. This humility is lived out practically, as he says, by counting others more significant than ourselves and not looking to our own interests, but to the interests of others. This kind of humility is described as having the mind of Christ. He says they should have one mind, be of the same mind, and to have this mind among yourselves. And then he launches into our text today because in Christ we have the highest example, the pinnacle of humility. So that's what Paul's doing. Now, the reason I say Christ is our perfect human example is because I think we would all agree that, at least I hope that we would agree, that we are called to become more and more like Jesus in our lives, right? We all agree with that. That's that's a goal of ours. Christ is our example and model to follow. 1 Peter 2 says this, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. But we also know that we all sin, 
And we fail to live up to Christ's righteous character, don't we? We know this. So when you hear a pastor or teacher say something like, Christ is our perfect model of humility, and we are called to follow him in that humility, what is one objection that might come to your mind? I know it comes to mind, to mind, something like this. Yeah, I know I'm supposed to be humble like Jesus, but come on. Jesus was God, right? (laughs) Jesus was divine. He was fully God, and I'm not, so this expectation for me to follow in Christ's steps is really kind of unrealistic, right? I mean, I know we hold it up there as a standard, but, I mean, come on, pastor. Come on, preacher. We all know we can't do it, right? Or maybe it's something like, of course Jesus was perfectly humble. He was God, after all. I'm not. So, of course, I'm going to fail, right? Now, we might never say that, but it can be a recurring thought, and it can cause us to simply accept the fact that we are sinners, which we are. We expect ourselves then to continue in sin and eventually become comfortable with our sin. But I believe this thinking is incorrect And it actually comes from a failure to understand the very nature of Jesus in his humanity. You see, when we don't understand what it means for Jesus to be fully God and fully man, at least two errors begin to creep in to our pursuit of holiness. The first error is this. I've already said, the call to follow Jesus in his character and in his steps seems like setting the bar unrealistically high, and therefore we become content to just not really pursue that. And second, and this is what I'm going to spend most of the time on today, it detracts from the glorious reality of Christ's perfect righteousness. If we believe that the reason Jesus was able to live a perfect life was simply because he was God and he wasn't able to sin anyway, then we don't rightly understand Christ's humanity. So much of the Bible gets confusing when we view Christ this way. For example, Jesus said that not even he knew the day or the hour of his second coming. How can that be, right? Have you ever thought about that? If he's God... How does he not know this fact, right? How was it that Jesus became hungry and tired and thirsty? If he's all-powerful, then how does that make sense? And what about the simple fact that Jesus lived 2,000 years ago in a specific time and place in history and geography? He wasn't omnipresent, we know he had these traits, these, character, these character, uh, characteristics before he became a man, right? Jesus existed eternally with the Father. So what happened? How do we make sense of Jesus and his divinity and his humanity? These are questions that Christians have been asking for thousands of years, and they're extremely important for how we view Christ, but also for how we view our own Christian lives. So, we're going to slow down and we're going to meditate on the glorious reality of the incarnation of Christ. 
And I hope, it's my prayer, that we'll begin to uncover just how miraculous the life of Christ really was. So my main idea for today is simply this. If If you're a main idea person, this is it. Jesus Christ, as fully God and fully man, is our perfect example of humility. Jesus Christ, as fully God and fully man, is our perfect example of humility. Let's, let's read, starting in chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now remember, Paul's point is, be united through humility, right? But he's using Jesus as, a, as the example. So we have to understand Jesus if we're gonna understand be united through humility. So we're gonna spend the rest of our time unpacking these verses. What is Paul saying? Why is he bringing up Jesus here? My first point is very simple. Jesus is fully God. Paul affirms the deity of Christ at least two times in this passage. First, he says, Jesus existed in the form of God. Says that in verse six. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now this word form here can be kind of confusing because of how we use the form, the word form in English, okay? If we say something is in the form of something else, we usually mean that the thing has the outward shape or outward appearance of something else, right? But the Greek word form actually means kind of the opposite of that. It means something's inner nature or inner substance. Now, if you've ever taken a basic intro to philosophy course, you probably read or at least talked about Plato's forms, right? This is his theory of forms that Plato had. In that work, Plato explores the idea that that the reason humans know the nature of anything is because we all have an inner recognition of their form or substance. Now, my point is not to talk about Plato and whether that's right or wrong or whatever, but it's to help us understand this word form. It carries with it the idea of inner nature or substance or being of a thing. It has the same meaning here. What Paul is saying is that Jesus had the same form, the same substance, the same inner nature as God. He shared his nature. He's not saying that Jesus simply looked like God or that Jesus was kind of a lesser version but sort of similar to God. No. Paul clearly believed and understood Christ to be divine. He's affirming it here. He was in the form of God. 
Now, another indication that this is what Paul means comes in verse seven. Look in verse seven. Paul says, Christ emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Now, does does that mean that Jesus only had the outward appearance or outward um, um, indication of, of of a servant, but he really wasn't a servant? Absolutely not. Paul's point, again, is that Jesus is the very substance, the very being, the pinnacle of servanthood, okay? So it's clear that Paul understood Jesus to be divine. He had the same form as God. The second way Paul affirms the deity of Christ comes in the same verse when we are told that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or tightly held onto. Okay? Paul clearly states that Jesus is equal to God. It doesn't mean that he's grasping to get equal to God. He's saying that he's equal to God, but he did not count that equality as something to be held tightly to, to be clung to, okay? All the benefits and privileges and glories of being equal with God, we're gonna see Christ did not cling to those things tightly. Now, why, we're gonna see here in a minute. Paul isn't even really arguing for this. He's just kind of taking it for granted. He assumes the Philippians already believe this. Paul's point in saying, talking about the equality of God that Jesus had, is to show that Jesus did not desperately cling to his godness and refuse to come to earth as a man. That's not what Jesus did. But we have to ask the question, who can be equal with God? Who can be equal with God? No one, right? Scripture's clear from beginning to end. There is only one God. Deuteronomy 6, the Lord our God is one. Isaiah 6, 46, 9, I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done. There's only one God, and to be equal with God is to be what? God. That's it. There cannot be any way for another person to be equal with God unless that person shares the same substance, the same nature as God himself. And this, in fact, fits precisely with our understanding of the Trinity, right? That God is a Trinitarian being. There is one God who exists in three co-eternal persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So Jesus let go of his godly status, his godly um, uh, benefits, and he took on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Now, it seems like most Christians don't have too much of a problem affirming the deity of Christ. In fact, that's actually kind of what it means to be a Christian, a big part of it, right? Right? Those who do not affirm the deity of Christ are not and should not be considered Christians at all. For example, you have Arius from the fourth century, who was a false teacher, who taught that Jesus was not co he was a created being, was not co eternal with the Father. Jehovah's Witnesses are modern day Arians. Um, There's other groups as well. 
But historically, the vast majority of those who call themselves Christians affirm the deity of Christ. We see it's affirmed here and all throughout Scripture. But what about the humanity of Jesus? It's my experience that this is where a lot of confusion kind of comes in. At least it has for me. Now, I don't mean heretical confusion. I'm I'm not saying that there's a bunch of people calling themselves Christians who deny Jesus' humanity. But what I'm saying is that there seems to be some confusion about what it means for Jesus to have taken on human flesh. So let's go to the text, and let's see if we can get some clarity on what this actually means. Jesus is fully man. Verse 7. In verse 7, we see... We read, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now, of course, the question immediately arises, what does it mean that Christ emptied himself? Now, we first have to say that this cannot mean that he emptied his divine nature from himself. As we've just seen, Scripture repeatedly affirms the deity of Christ. He was God. There's absolutely no indication that Jesus, the eternal Son of the Father, removed his divine nature or ceased to be God at any point in his existence. That is not what Paul is saying. Instead, what Paul is saying is that Jesus emptied himself out. It's the same word for pouring something out of a pitcher. He poured himself out. Paul's not saying that Jesus poured something out of his nature, something like namely his divinity. That's not what he's saying. He's saying he poured out his very self for his people. His point is is simply this. Jesus is the ultimate servant. He pours himself out. He exemplifies this in his servanthood by coming to earth and dying for his people. It was a pouring out of himself. Now, how did he do this? Okay, there's a participle here, taking. How did Jesus pour himself out? He took something. He, was, he took the form of a servant and was born in the likeness of men. That seems like a strange way to empty yourself, doesn't it? So one commentator I read, he put it this way. He, he calls this subtraction by addition, right? Something was poured out of Christ by taking on something to himself. He empties himself by taking on a human nature. Now, how does this actually work? So there's two illustrations that I read this week that were super helpful for me. And so I'm going to read them because they're very good. The first one comes, they both come from Bruce Ware. This one comes from a a children's book. And so it's going to be kind of like I'm reading to a a child. That's why it's going to talk about like a brother and things like that. Um, But this is to help children understand how Jesus can be fully God and fully man. Here's an illustration of what we're talking about. Imagine for a moment that someone, say, an older brother of yours, was shopping for a new car. He went to a BMW car dealership and asked to test drive a beautiful, shiny new sports car. The dealer handed him the keys, and off he drove. Now, 
For the last several days, it had rained buckets in your area, and your brother decided to drive the shiny new car on the dirt roads out in the country. Well, as you can imagine, the roads were muddy as could be, and your brother drove this car wildly, turning and sliding every way in the mud before he brought it back to the showroom floor. When he drove it in, absolutely covered in mud, the car dealer exclaimed, what have you done to my car? But to this, your brother calmly said, oh, you needn't worry. I've not taken anything away from your car. I've only added to it. Now, of course, your brother was right. Every quality of that car was still there. It still had its beautiful coat of paint and its luster. Nothing had been removed from what was there before. Rather, something had been added to it, a thick coat of mud. But notice what this mud did. It covered over that beautiful shine so that even though it was still there, you couldn't see it. You might even say that the mud worked to hide the glory and brilliance of the car, even though those qualities were still there, just hidden. Before the coming of Christ, there was nothing to hide or conceal his full deity so it could show forth in full brilliance. But when he became also a man, he covered himself with a created, limited, and finite human nature. So even though Christ is fully God in the incarnation, he cannot express the full range of his divine qualities or attributes owing to his having also taken on human nature. So while the glory of Christ's deity is still fully present and intact, the manifestation of that glory is not allowed its full expression because he is covered in a human nature. Is that helpful? That's really helpful for me. As I think about how can Christ be fully God, he retains all of his deity, all of the qualities of God, and yet he takes on human flesh. What does that do to him? That's a good, that's a good illustration. Here's the second illustration. This is also helpful. Imagine now a great king, a great and glorious kingdom that's ruled by a strong and wealthy king. This king has every privilege one can imagine. He possesses the finest of everything money can buy. He eats every day from the choicest cuisine. He wears the most elegant and exquisite clothing. He is cared for by the highest educated and most skilled doctors in the land. He's protected by a force of royal soldiers. And yet, one day, as the king was taking a short journey to another part of the city, he passed an area he seldom had seen. Before him on the streets, he observed several beggars. He could not get these poor men out of his mind. On his return to the palace, he thought to himself, I wonder what it's like to live as a beggar. He could not remove this question from his mind. So with a determination to find out just what life is like, he decided to move out of the palace onto some of the impoverished streets of his city. Instead of wearing the fine clothing from his wardrobe, he put on the tattered, smelly clothes of a beggar. In every way he could, he acquired the day-to-day -day life and limitations of a beggar. 
having taken on the restrictions of a beggarly life when the king was hungry, although he could have called for the royal chefs to bring him a choice meal to live life as a beggar, he instead learned what it was like to go hungry or beg for food. And when the king grew ill from the disease surrounding him, while he could have called for a highly trained doctor to attend to him, in order to live life as a beggar, he accepted being sick with little, if any, help for his illnesses. And when insulted and mistreated by passers-by, although he could have called for the royal guard to defend him and bring justice, in order to live life as a beggar, he accepted with no retaliation the mistreatment and insults foisted upon him. Is that helpful? Just like this king, Christ willingly chose to come to earth and identify with his people by becoming like us in every way. He clothed himself with human nature, something he did not have before coming to earth. And when he did so, he willingly accepted the limitations that that human nature brought onto him. Now, he most certainly retained all of his divine nature, and he was just as much God as he always had been. He still possessed all the qualities of his divine kingship, but the manifestation of those qualities were hidden. They were cloaked by his human nature. It could not be expressed. Now, why would Jesus do things this way? Because if the king is going to genuinely and authentically live as a beggar, he must necessarily accept the limits and restrictions that come with that role. And this is exactly what Scripture says about Jesus in other places, as we've already talked about. Remember when Jesus said he doesn't know the day or the hour of the second coming? How? It's because Jesus when taking on human flesh, willingly chose to accept limitations on his knowledge. He lived life day to day just like you and I live life. Why was Jesus only present in a very small area in the Middle East for about 35 years? Because he willingly accepted a limitation on his omnipresence. Why did Jesus get tired and hungry and thirsty? Why did he allow himself to die a physical death just like every other human being when he retained the full power and authority of his divine nature? Because he willingly accepted those limitations to identify with his people. Now again, I want to make this very clear. Jesus did not lose his divine nature. It was still there but he willingly allowed it to be covered by the human nature, and therefore his full divine nature was not manifested or expressed. Jesus lived the vast majority of his life just like you and I do, as a man dependent upon the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Now, you're probably already thinking about this. We have examples where the divine nature of Jesus does peek through his human nature, right? Jesus performed miracles. 
and healings. He casted out demons. It's not clear all the time how these miracles were performed. Was this the divine nature of Christ coming through? Jesus, in a sense, taking the cloak off for a second? Or was it Jesus relying on the Spirit of God in his life as a man performing these miracles? I don't know. It's sometimes, it's not always clear. But we do have this. John chapter 2, this famous account of Jesus turning water into wine. He's at a wedding and the wine runs out. His mother comes to him and lets him know, hey, Jesus, the wine's gone. What's Jesus' response? What's this have to do with me, woman? My hour has not yet come. It's not time for me to start this miracle working, this, this, uh, this new work. He, he wasn't, it wasn't time. But then what happens? Jesus tells the servants to fill the barrels with water, take some of the water to the master of the feast. And when the master tasted it, it was no longer water, but wine. And do you remember what John tells us about this miracle in this chapter? He says, this the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. Manifested his glory. It wasn't manifested before this. This was Jesus' first miracle. His, his glory, his divine nature up to that point had been cloaked. It had been covered with his human nature. This was the first of his signs, and in this work, this miracle, he manifested his glory. Now, of course, we have one specific instance where Jesus' divine glory was even more fully revealed, right? You're probably already thinking about this. This is the account of Jesus' transfiguration. Is that, has that ever confused you? <laughs> I remember reading this most of my life. I read the account of the transfiguration about Jesus taking his disciples up on the mountain and being transfigured before them. And they worshiped him and came down from the mountain and their faces were glowing. That sounds really cool. What in the world is going on, right? What does it even mean? It makes a lot more sense, though, when you have a right understanding of the dual nature of Christ, his human nature and his divine nature. In the transfiguration, the humanity of Christ was uncloaked. The cover was off for a moment. And his disciples were able to gaze upon his divine glory. He was not covered in the human nature. The beggar's clothes were shed in the divine glory shone through. It was so amazing that their faces shone as they came down the mountain. Now, all of this is still a, a lot of mystery to us, right? At the end of the day, we still have to admit we cannot fully understand all the details of how these two natures coexist in one person. But just because we can't fully understand it doesn't mean we can't understand it at all. When we let Scripture be our guide, we can make sense of these truths in a way that actually reveals the beauty and the glory of Christ. So, what have we seen so far? Consider this amazing reality. Christ did not grasp or clench 
tightly to the benefits and glories of heaven. He let them go. He willingly gave up equality with God. That doesn't mean he stopped being God. He gave up the benefits of of heaven, the benefits of his eternal nature, and he poured himself out for you and me. And he did so without relying on his eternal divine nature. And if that's not enough to display his unmatched humility for us, let's go to our last point before we close. Not only did he leave the glories of heaven and condescend to us and live life like us in human flesh, but he was fully obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Look at verses eight through 11. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There was no limit to the obedience of Jesus. He was obedient to the farthest point that is humanly possible, his own death. His humility had no caveats or exceptions. His love for his people drove him to go to the limits of suffering and even death on the cross. At that time, there was no more humiliating or painful death one could endure. Those who died on crosses in Jesus' day were considered cursed by God. They were called cursed. It was for criminals, the worst of the worst of society. There was no loincloth like we have in the paintings and movies. A person was stripped completely naked Put yourself in that place. You would be humiliated and embarrassed in front of an entire city. Jesus was humiliated and embarrassed because he was fully human. Jesus underwent beating and torture before he was even placed onto the cross. He was beaten by leather straps with shards of metal or bone tied to the ends of them. A crown of thorns was not just placed on his head gently, but forced down into his skull. Put yourself in his place. You would be screaming in agony, begging for the torture to relent. Jesus screamed in agony because he was fully human. The one to be crucified carried his own cross to the top of a mountain. The victim was laid down onto the cross where their hands and feet were tied and nails were driven into their hands and their feet. Probably even their shin bones. The cross was then lifted up and the person was put on full display for everyone to see. Jesus' body began to slump downward and outward and contracted his lungs. The longer he hung there, the harder it became for him to breathe. You died of suffocation during crucifixion. Put yourself in his place. 
you would gasp for breath, you would lose all hope of ever being rescued, and you would long for death. Jesus experienced that because he was fully human. Fully human. He did not call out. He did not uncloak himself of his human nature and say, all right, Lord, I've had enough. Let the divine nature come through so I can get some relief. He did not do that once. He bore all of that suffering. And before he died, he asked for a drink of water because he was thirsty, because he was fully human. And he was given vinegar mixed with gall. And even in the midst of this unimaginable suffering, Jesus interceded on behalf of his own murderers by praying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Church, we must never minimize or gloss over the suffering that Jesus endured for our sake. May we never think, well, he was God. He probably didn't endure it. He, he probably just, you know, got some help from his divine nature, so it didn't hurt as bad for him. He suffered in every way we suffer. He was tempted in every way we have been tempted. And he has experienced a level of temptation that most of us never will. Jesus resisted every temptation to the very end. How quickly do we give in to our temptation? Sure, we might resist, right, for a little while. But how quickly do we give in? Jesus resisted every temptation to the very end. He experienced a level of temptation that most of us will never know. He was fully obedient to the point of death. But why would he do such a thing? Because just like in our illustration, we have a king who in his love has chosen to identify with his people. There are many other passages that teach the same thing. John 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Hebrews 2, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. Why is he crowned with glory and honor? Because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Hebrews 2, 14, since we, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. In Hebrews 4, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus the Son of God, the God-man, the one who is fully God and fully man, was fully obedient to the point of death, 
even death on a cross. Church, this is where we see the glory and wisdom of God most clearly displayed. This is why we say over and over that we never move beyond the gospel. It's in the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the pl- God's plan of salvation is fully revealed and where Christ's work is most fully understood. There was no other man who could do what Christ did because no other man was both fully God and fully man. There can be no other mediator for, for us than the man, Christ Jesus, our Lord. There's no other human being like him. He is one of a kind and he has no rival. This is why the next words from Paul's pen are that God has highly exalted him And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Our king did not stay dead, but was raised and ascended into heaven, and with his perfected body, and he now sits enthroned over the universe The nations belong to him. He's ruling as our divine and human king. And one day he will return to establish once and for all his dominion over this earth. We will see him in his flesh and blood. It will be amazing. Friends, we have every reason to marvel today at this mind-blowing plan of salvation. Why does this ever get old to us? I asked myself that this week. Why do I meditate? Why do I give myself to so many lesser things than this person, this God-man, the one who we can't even fully comprehend? And when we start to contemplate it, I feel like my mind and my heart are gonna explode in worship. Why do we busy ourselves and occupy ourselves with so many lesser glories when we have these eternal truths to contemplate? Why don't I give this to my kids more? Why don't I talk about this glorious nature, this unimaginable humility that we see in this person of Christ Why do we ever think that the things of this world are more beautiful and more powerful and more attractive than the person of Christ? The application today is simple. What do we do with this? As we sing, or as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, let's behold our divine Savior. He is our Lord, the man, Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word that gives such clarity. Oh, how we are so thankful that we are not left in the dark about who you are, who Jesus is, and what it means to follow him. Change us now from one degree of glory to another as we behold the Lord. I want us so badly to see Christ and to be changed by him, to long for him so that our hearts would be satisfied in him and we would stop 
worshiping. We would stop giving ourselves for so many lesser things. Oh, I need that so badly. Lord, now as we take the Lord's Supper, I pray that it would be, it would be a time for us to again behold the wonder and glory of Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.